Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. I am really excited to introduce everybody. I've been wanting everybody to meet Carl Dakin, um, and he's our guest today. Carl D- is with uh, Dakin Capital and a whole bunch of other businesses that he's going to talk a little bit about. Uh, we met Carl a couple years ago, actually at, I met you at, uh, over at Water Tower Place for the Food Expo. That's correct. And you and I stood there and talked for a good hour. And then um, I didn't hear anything from you for a little while. And then last year you joined Action 22, but I didn't make the connection as to who you were. Um, and then you came to our annual meeting. And I was like, oh, that's him. Because I'd asked after you after we had first met. And then, and honestly, I'd forgotten. But you're doing some amazing things. One of the things that we talked about doing was um, you're working on a whole bunch of housing stuff. And, of course, we just finished our housing summit. And... Uh, we actually sort of put this on, um, not just at your urging, but kind of for you, because we <laughs> wanted to really um, have some serious conversations that were actionable about public, um, well, pu- the public space, but private um, partnerships in that public space and with those public funds, because we all know that that's going to be how we're going to get things done moving forward, especially in Colorado that has some different issues than um, other states with regard to um, investment with public funds. So um, that's a long and complicated thing, but there's a whole lot going on with housing. So I'm so glad to have you. I've been anxious to have everybody meet you um, and get to know you a little bit better. Um, You didn't, of course, make it to the housing summit because you fell ill right before. And so now we're going to follow up and have a conversation everybody can listen in on. Yeah, I was uh, very disappointed I couldn't make it. Uh, just officially, I did have COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had uh, tried to squeeze three conferences and a road trip uh, uh, <laughs> all together in one month, and that wasn't enough, so I added a little COVID just to make right. sure I was fully occupied. Uh, and um, I, I was happy that uh, people I'm working with were able to attend and contribute to that event. And um, I'm... Uh, Looking forward to doing more things like that in the future where we can get people together uh, and talk about the complexity of rural workforce housing, how we can solve that problem immediately. And if we can't solve it immediately, then what can we do to get started <laughs> on, the, on the solution? So um, happy to, to talk about that and dive into more detail. So would you give us um, a little bit of perspective um, with regard to trying to overcome that, especially the investment side of it? and um, the capital side of it in Colorado. This is this is not how it is in other states. I, I'm going to disagree a little bit okay. with that statement. I, I found that the problems we're facing here in Colorado are actually very similar to a lot of other states. Uh, they may have money trickle into the area of uh, housing, but uh, by and large, uh, most of the money that comes into housing these days comes out of the Fed at one level or another. Uh, the federal programs uh, all fall under what they call affordable that are managed by HUD. And uh, to some degree, uh, I'm, I'm not complaining about what HUD is doing, but uh, the 
part of the problem for workers, uh, people who are full-time employed, is that uh, the HUD programs start with the people who need a roof over their head the worst, which include people who are unemployed or partially employed, and they simply run out of money before they get to the point where there's enough money for somebody who's working full-time. Then we get into the secondary issue of the fact that because it is a form of subsidized housing, if you're working full-time, you may not qualify because your income is impairing your ability to participate in the program. So um, my background on this was I uh, was doing a lot of work with different communities on economic development job generation, and we reached a point during COVID, actually prior to COVID, uh, where they're telling us, well, we can't do any more job generation because there's no housing. If there's no housing, then the businesses here can't hire anybody. And heard multiple stories in multiple communities where we brought a person in, we really wanted to hire them, they looked around, there was no housing, and they went home, right. and, and they couldn't hire them. And with COVID and all the needs for the, uh, the rural communities in particular to recover from COVID, and that occurs through job growth and generation, if there's no housing, then we got stuck. So I I turned my attention a little bit away from uh, job generation towards what can we do to solve the housing problem. So I think, um, let me go back and and, uh, qualify a little bit. The the whole thing in Colorado, and it's because of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or what we call TABOR, um, growth has to pay for itself in Colorado. The governments can't, local governments can't do that kind of investment. So that's why it's such a key piece to be able to have um, those public-private partnerships. And it's not something that people are entirely aware of because Tabor doesn't exist in other states. Uh, it doesn't, but um, actually historically, most states west of the Mississippi imposed laws into their constitution which banned the state government from investing in private enterprise, and the railroads are at fault for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so <laughs> right. with, with a couple state exceptions, such as Texas, where they went in and amended their constitution to allow direct investment, it all ends up going around in circles. So the money has to go to a nonprofit or has to go through a state agency to a nonprofit before it can come back to a for-profit. And it's created a bias uh, in the housing area, particularly where if you want to do housing and you're not a nonprofit, then you're, you're kind of up against it on how you're going to get in and make something happen. And all the programs uh, basically funnel money to the Fed, Uh, through a bunch of uh, different funding programs, which come down to community development investment groups, which in turn go to nonprofits, which may also be CDFIs. And there's a limited amount of money there. So again, at the end of the day, they're doing good work. They're doing their best they can. But with COVID, when you saw uh, populations of homeless surge 240% or something like that, their job became bigger and it overwhelmed any money that was available. And and then suddenly they have this new market that is being identified as the missing middle, which represents workers who are low income. And uh, they struggle there because the definitions of what is a worker, what constitutes low income. uh, And and if you're in a rural community, you're not uh, first in line to get funding from anywhere Mm -hmm. uh, because most of the money is is centered around large financial institutions which favor urban areas. So you have a whole series of different reasons why money is not immediately available, uh, particularly for somebody who's uh, considered at risk because of their low income and they're in a rural community, which creates a second level of risk. That's funny because, um, you know, through my years of work, there would be people that don't quite qualify 
and say they're going to lose their house or, you know, they can't pay their mortgage, but they make too much money to qualify for help. And a lot of times the federal government or even the financial institutions, their answer was like, well, just don't pay your mortgage for six months and then maybe we could come in or, you know, take a lower paying job. Yeah. And that's ridiculous. Like, like <clears throat> that, that pissed me off so much when we'd get that answer where it's just somebody needs a little bit of help and everything would be fine. Well, and another problem I'll point out, which we look at, is that almost all the federal programs uh, support rental properties. Mm-hmm. There's no true opportunity to build wealth through home ownership. And, and because of that, people who are working at the low incomes in a rental and living in a rental property, if they get a job offer for an extra buck fifty or two bucks an hour, thirty miles over in the next community, they're going to jump to that because that's a major increase yeah. in pay. And so the stability or, or the roots in the community are not present. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of our programs we're working on uh, through Housing O2, which is our, our development company, we start off first with how do we enable home ownership so you can build wealth in that home, all the financial modeling we're doing uh, using private funding in order to get to that outcome is there. And, and again, at the end of the day, that housing is necessary and essential for recovery from the pandemic at the economic development level. So all these pieces have to fit together. We have to get funding with available housing, with uh, community engagement and integration into the economic development programs for everything kind of hum along the way we'd like for it to. Well, that sounds pretty simple to do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, um, We're facing a number of additional problems which come up with that, which is part of why we're interested in having this housing summit and getting some of these issues on the table in that uh, in order to address the cost of housing, our current position is that that housing probably needs to be manufactured off-site or prefabricated and brought onto the site because there is little or no labor available to do on-site construction and preparation, and the cost is higher doing what is called a common sticks and bricks approach or a semi-custom you know, build on-site. If you do it in a factory with some automation uh, where the, if it rains outside, you don't have to call your workers off, mm-hmm. uh, you can get to a lower cost of housing. So we started with that. Then we started looking at some of the newest, more modern technologies that were available uh, to do this, which would contribute to a lower cost, and, you know, prefab steel buildings and flip-up walls, anything along that line. And what we found is a lot of the rural communities did not understand this technology. Their current building codes uh, basically did not accommodate this type of a building. And if you walked it into them, even if they, they, they want you desperately to do workforce housing in their community, they go, we don't know how to handle this. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, you were overwhelming either in volume or technology or something else what's going on there. And so uh, we are now... Uh, advocating for uh, more manufacturers, more automation in the manufacturing, uh, different types of materials and new ways of going about it. And these are all coming up against the wall of local community that know how to, how to work with it. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, when you hear a prefab home or a manufactured home going back 20 years, nobody liked them, right? They, they were kind of uncomfortable. Um, they all look the same. But now with the technology coming out and how they're building them, I mean, they're they're beautiful. They're no longer that old. Well, yeah, and since that time, uh, HUD uh, has come out with two levels of standards. There is what they call manufactured house, which is the higher standard. Then the other ones are the 
uh, modular homes, which right. are the ones that most people have problems with because the quality is not there and right. they may depreciate uh, instead of appreciate in value over time. Uh, but the newest technologies, you can build a multi-million dollar house of the highest quality. <clears throat> it can have all the features, buzz, buzz you know, features you want to put into it. And it, it can be a higher quality home, even at a lower cost. Mm-hmm. And, then, and that's what we're striving for right now is, is there's only so many variables out of the 100 or so we're working with that you can really influence significantly in doing development and, and trying to push down the cost of housing is the one that we really want to focus on. And then uh, to follow that, because a lot of the stuff we're doing is new and innovative, then we're trying to figure out, well, how can we create a standard for housing, something that would be a turnkey plug-and-play template. And uh, that is where uh, one of the things we've done since the summit, which is not that long ago, uh, is I'm now working with Jason Nagy. We have stood up a brand-new nonprofit called the Rural Workforce Housing Mm -hmm. Innovation Coalition. And one of the three programs that we are inviting people to participate in uh, is to come up with a brand-new building code for workforce housing for 24, 48, or 96 units that includes all the buildings, everything including streets and parking, but also the hookups to all the utilities because one of the other places where we're seeing rural communities having trouble keeping up, catching up, is they're going, well, you have to plug into the local electrical utility or right. the local gas line. Well, what if I want to put up a solar farm? I want to create a performance power generation district. There is no mechanism currently to link that to the housing development, which would allow you to drop utility bills and make it even more affordable if you are actually making money off of your participation instead of having to pay a utility bill every month. So, um, uh, this is what we're looking to say is that we're, we're inviting uh, local communities uh, without fee, uh, local economic development groups uh, without fee, and then for the businesses, we're going to charge a fee, and they'll get to have all the deep, deep, dark secrets that we learn along the way uh, to uh, how to build out one of these communities. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the things that was the big takeaway that we found from the housing summit was um, Rick Klein, of course, mm-hmm. who is the city manager. It was our board chair, but is also the city manager for La Junta. Um, they actually redid their building and zoning, mm-hmm. um, and they walked through it. And it was a task, but now that somebody in the region has done it, it's a lot more duplicatable, um, number one. And number two is... Um, I think the other big takeaway, and and uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more from from that was um, it will help a, sort of align those um, building um, those zoning and building codes so that you can keep everybody. It's not going to be okay. You're in Werfano County one day, and you've got that set of building codes, and you're in Otero, and it's that set of building codes, and then you're in Pueblo, and it's that set of building codes, and Custer, and that set of. Yeah. Every, you know, that's one of the big barriers, yeah, right? Every city is different. The age of their local building codes can be up to 20, 30, 30 years old with right. no significant change. Most of them don't understand or cannot deal with these new technologies or the new utility uh, programs we'd like to see implemented. And, and so what we think is if we could create, I'll call it a leads equivalent type of a program, right. Uh, where if you check all the boxes and they're third-party verified so that you can walk in front of a city council and go, we're ready to go, then no further approval is needed. And and 
since they give the developer, the builder, the, the green light to go ahead and get started, and we're not tied up in weeks, months, sometimes years, right. waiting for the local government. And, and, and again, I, I'm being very careful. I don't want to criticize or appear critical of the local government. They're doing the best they can with what they have, but they're, if they're understaffed, underfunded, and we give them something they've never seen before, <laughs> they can't get there from here. Well, so, we dealt with that <clears throat> whole thing um, a few months back with the zoning or the ordinances here on yeah. solar. I mean, it's it's not that anybody's trying to be nefarious or do anything right. but their best, but these small local governments are understaffed, right. and they have a lot, and they're, they're underfunded, understaffed, um, and they just don't have the resources to do it. So that's going to that's what we're talking about when we're talking about public-private partnerships right. and how to move that along in a productive way. Right, and that's exactly what this program is intended to be, is get everyone who's involved in any of the building or utility part, whether they're a subcomponent manufacturer, they're a manufactured housing, or uh, they're tied into uh, the utilities or any anything along that line, and, and create enough interfaces, enough sign-offs where it could be pretty much fit into any community with maybe little or no changes. And, and at that point, then, we've simplified it for the local community. And a developer knows when they go in that they're going to get approval. It's mm-hmm. not a let's see if this happens one, two, or three years down the right. road and have lost all the money that's gone into that front-end uh, part of development. And I think the key to that is once you um, you find a community where this is successful, I think – that alone would just build the trust of all the other communities that are similar. Yeah. Anytime in innovation, my background, 40 years of bringing new technologies to market, the first time you do something out of the box or first off, uh, everybody doesn't know, even the people who created it don't know how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it requires setting up a demo project or what they call a pilot project where everybody can see it, touch it, kick the tires and go, that's a pretty good idea. I could do that too. Mm-hmm. And, but you have to almost have a complete finished product mm-hmm. project or, or product before people can get that comfortable with it. Talk a little bit about HO2. Um, it's a very uh, innovative approach to this, talk, trying to solve this problem. And then we can talk a little bit um, in a little bit later um, about the, the nonprofit, but talk about HO2. Sure. Uh, back during COVID, uh, which I guess is still COVID today, <laughs> speaking personally, uh, I was going to say back during COVID, uh, uh, we were uh, looking at uh, different business opportunities that were coming up because of COVID. And one of them was a work from home scenario where everybody was told, don't come into the office. You got to work out of your house. And if you've ever tried to work in your house with pets and kids and so forth, then you know that's, <laughs> every day. It's, it's not, every not day. an optimal working environment. No. Uh, so we, we created the company, and uh, Housing O2 or HO2 stood for Office Optimization. Ah. And, um, and so we got ready, and we started talking to people, we can come in and optimize your house. Well, I don't have a house, or I need a house. And, and all the communities kept telling us, well, we don't have any housing for new housing, so you're either going to do retrofits or you're going to start off with new stuff. So we decided, no, we'd focus on housing and get started. And along that path, with the mission of, of knowing what the needs were in the community already from having worked with so many different communities, uh, we said, well, how are we going to make this fundable and uh, so the first thing we were doing was trying to figure out what would cause investors from out of a community to come into that community. 
And uh, we had been experimenting with some things for the last few years, and, and we came up with what we call employer participation uh, project. And in this case, what we do is we go into the community, we go to the local employers, and we say, how many employees you have who need a house right now? And uh, without putting any cash into the project, we basically pre-sell the house to the employer with the understanding that it's going to be rented to their employee for a five-year term. And at the end of the five years, if everything's worked out so well, then what we agree is to sell it to the employer at 10% below market Mm -hmm. value. They're required to take that discount and turn around and make a down payment on behalf of their employee into the purchase of the house. So with no cash in the program, they get a great incentive to hire and retaining people for five years. And anyone who's a low-income worker who has a five-year work history with a singular employer who has 10% to put down on a house will qualify for several of the different mortgage programs that are out there. And so by doing this, uh, they are building wealth while working for their employer without doing any more than making the, the rental payments along the path. And... By doing it with the employers being on the hook, basically we're selling to the employer, they're reselling to their employee. Then when we go to an outside investor, we say, we'd like for you to put money into the construction and so forth of this project. They go, well, I, I wouldn't give money to that low-income person because I don't know them and so forth. Right. But I happen to do the, know the local government, happen to know the local hospital, happen to know the local school district. They're all still going to be here in five years. And so their credibility, their credit worthiness is what's leaned upon by these investors to come into the project. And it also builds, um, it retains people living there as well because yeah. one of the, the hardest things for rural Colorado that we deal with is people leaving. Yep. And are people coming in and not staying? And this is wonderful. Yeah. So for a low income worker, a 10% down payment may represent six to eight months of paychecks. Right. That's a big incentive. It's not, here's a $500, $1,000 signing bonus. We're talking twenty, thirty thousand $30,000. And yeah. uh, that is, that's worth sticking to the job. And, and hopefully during that time period, they're, they're, increasing their skills, they're making more money, and when they get to the point of stepping from the rental into the mortgage, it's it's just a simple step. It's not a big step for them. Well, the idea of, of um, having the opportunity with a job to increase your wealth instead of just the rental part of it, it almost, it, it, keeps, it keeps that middle income or that middle low income stuck. There's no way out. Um, otherwise, they're just it's not just not there. And, and that's part of the, the complaint I have with the federal programs that you uh, if you're the developer, you're supposed to rent. I believe the minimum is seven years. And uh, it's very hard to get somebody to stay for seven years, even if they're uh, loving their job and where they're at. And during that seven years, there's no equity. Right. Whatsoever. Uh, where this program, the five years, does count. You do have a payday at the end of the five years, so you're building wealth even though you're not controlling ownership of the property at the time. So we're we're just post-COVID sort of. <laughs> couple <laughs> weeks. couple <laughs> weeks post-COVID. Um, Until the next search around November. <laughs> Brian, stop it right now. So so Brian and I got it. We all got it. Both of our families, everybody in our both of our families got it really early on in November of 20. Then we turned around and we somehow skirted Delta, but we all got Omicron too. So if there's another round, 
we're mad. <laughs> well, I'm mad about it, but I, I, I appreciate that. But we're um, we'll just work what, through it. We well, don't one of my other hats we'll have to talk about is this new uh, air disinfection technology I'm working with, which is installed in my house. And so everybody goes, "How did you recover from COVID in three days?" I go, "Well, I have a state of the art system in my house, and." Uh, even though we have no clinical data, I have to make this statement <laughs> that says that inhaling this uh, cold plasma uh, charged particles entirely, it may actually have a remedial effect on, on the length and duration of COVID or other respiratory diseases. So we'll be talking about yeah. that in October for <laughs> okay. Brian's house and our house. And um, yeah. yeah, we'll see. We'll talk about that. So um you haven't really been able to, you haven't had the time yet to really um, have a success story on this approach. No, we, we started a little over a year ago with our first project in Walsenburg, Colorado. Uh, we bought the three acres behind the old high school known as the old football field. We know and, it well. Um, and the city welcomed us in and they've been working with us hand in hand throughout this entire process. But this particular property is in a 100-year floodplain, and uh, the floodplain was imposed after the city was built. So this is an example of a federal regulation which is sitting on top of an existing built city, and that's not a simple problem any way you look at it. So after doing everything we could within design, we had to cut our initial program back from 48 units to 16 units. But um, we've now figured out how to do this engineering-wise to conform to the FEMA and the city regulations. And we've submitted a zoning rezoning application for the football field to an R2 multifamily. And we're just waiting on that final approval before we can uh, raise our funding uh, we've already got a couple employer commitments already, and we'll have to go out and finish those off. Uh, and uh, then uh, it's about a $3.5 million project. We raised the funding in. Uh, we're working with a, a local uh, builder manufactured housing here in Pueblo, uh, IndyDwell. And um, they have a steel uh, building that is perfect for this kind of right. a situation. And uh, we'll throw those up in a hurry. Uh, hopefully we'll be done by this time next year. They'll be occupied and people will be working on their five-year uh, rent-to-own program. Yeah. Uh, and Walsenburg is desperately in need of that. Um, they're, they've always struggled. They've always struggled financially down there. Um, and it's, it's one of, I think one of the biggest issues of why they haven't thrived more, because there's really not a lot mm-hmm. of reasons for them not to, is because they haven't had that that housing component and, and you drive through Walsenburg and, you know, you see houses falling down and you're not interested in all at all and in trying to invest in that space. Um, but so that's a really big deal. Even 16 units is a really big deal in Walsenburg. It is. When uh, we first started talking to them, uh, there were estimates um, um, between 100 and 200 units needed in the community. They now have told me 300. Uh, not all the units they need are going to fit within the model that we have. So this is one approach. Uh, We're now looking at what we're calling a collective or private real estate investment trust approach, where instead of having individual deeded properties, uh, people will have common ownership in a larger group of buildings. And uh, so we might throw up 20 apartments and every rental payment will include a set aside, which will buy them a bigger stakehold in the building itself. So it's like buying stock certificates where you, every month you're, you're making a payment, 
pays for the rent, also gets you a little bigger ownership piece of the of the pie. And uh, this is something that actually we started uh, thinking about over a dozen years ago for a, a rural uh, art community that was uh, going to be uh, up in Central City. And we were trying to figure out how do we deal with artists who have uh, no certainty of how long they're going to stay in place. And every time you build an artist housing area, everybody around that then moves in and the prices go up and they get right. pushed out. They get gentrified in a hurry. Right. Um, the old joke is, where's the next property you should buy? It's wherever the artists are living yep. now uh, would apply to that. Salida. So, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're looking at some models there. This would uh, potentially work well with um, better seasonal places like the resort areas. It also worked with some of the health places where they're bringing in um, healthcare practitioners who are on on-call basis, and they're really never going to fit into a long-term uh, rent-to-own program. And um, so we're we're looking at that. Uh, the other thing we're looking at currently is trying to how to remodel the upstairs of Main Street. So quite commonly, um, yeah. you'll have a commercial downstairs, but upstairs is either unused or underutilized. And uh, the question is, can we come in with some modern technology, maybe slide in complete units and uh, do this that conforms to ADA and fire requirements and do it at a price point that would be far cheaper than a straightforward remodeling type of of an approach. So we're going to continue to stretch limits and experiment. And at the same time, uh, we're going to deal head on with these issues that we're seeing in all communities, uh, which still has to do with the cost of housing and with local code regulations. So if you can get over those um, initial issues, um, and I say initial, they're not. I mean, they're bigger issues for you for sure. We believe we can solve the problem. Right okay. now. That's, I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, so that's, we don't see this as an insurmountable problem. It's just a matter of making it more efficient, which will serve to reduce the cost, which means we can make more housing available to even lower incomes. Mm. So um, with the project in Warfano County or in Walsenburg, um, and by the way, 16 units, I was just kind of trying to do the math in my head. That would be equivalent to about 200 units here in Pueblo, wouldn't it? Or would it be more? I Just couldn't tell you the guess. ratio. Yeah, that'd be about about two hundred. I think so. Yeah. yeah, that'd be about. So that's 200. what we're talking about. That sixteen units down there is a big deal, yeah. even though it's not what you initially had hoped for, and you can come back later and do that. Yeah, as soon as, as, as it's a big deal. We get rezoned, and we're in motion on this. We've already talked with the city and a number of uh, private property owners about doing something uh, in the city or on the edge of the city in the county. And uh, so, you know, we'll try to continue to work towards uh, fulfilling whatever their need is within the community. Right. Um, so that's a solution. Um, tell us a little bit, and we'll talk. Um, we'll talk some more um, in a few minutes about this. Um, why a nonprofit organization to to help with this? Well, um, a lot of the problems that we're dealing with uh, are problems that I will say are, are nationwide. Mm-hmm. They're not limited to Colorado or to where we're at. And uh, even if we do everything we would like to do within Housing O2, uh, we're still going to be limited in, in what we can accomplish. Uh, we're getting ready to, to try to raise money into a real estate fund. And if that's fully funded, we're looking at 5,000 units a year, which in a state that needs 325,000 units, uh, we're still a long ways from solving the problem. And so uh, what we'd like to do is, is working with communities in collaboration, 
is start solving some of these larger problems that go beyond us and go to other people who are also working like us to solve the problem. And uh, a nonprofit makes a lot more sense to do that. Uh, it's got eligibility for grants that we as a for-profit are not allowed to touch right. uh, because profit is is apparently not good everywhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, we won't go down on that, that topic. But um, it actually serves as a better platform uh, in a public-private partnership where uh, a nonprofit can be more uh, nonpartisan, mm-hmm. Uh, apolitical. Uh, they can be uh, a good intermediary maybe between us on the private sector and the government sector where we need to work together, but for some reason we've got cross issues. Uh, and and then uh, it can bring more resources to bear on these problems than we can directly as a company. Uh, so as, as a result of that, it made sense to, to create this new entity uh, and to uh, grow it up, staff it up, fund it up as quickly as possible. And uh, out of the gate, we're looking at three programs. Uh, the one I've mentioned is the new housing code for, for workforce housing subdivisions. Uh, we're also looking at a second program, which will be a business accelerator. So if you're any new business, like the one we, we talked with on Monday, that's got a brand new uh, housing technology, uh, they're out of the gate. They're uh, a recent graduate of school mines here in Colorado. Uh, they're just moving from technology to business, and oh, that's yeah. where we can help the most as an accelerator. We can introduce them to people, which we already have. We can introduce them to communities where they may set up their manufacturing to create new jobs. And, of course, every time we create new jobs, we create more need for housing. So that's a really yeah. good for us. Um, and uh, just do a, a variety of things along that line. Uh, and then uh, the last one we want to do is what we call an innovation district. Uh, and this is a term a lot of people call it centers of excellence or other things. But we'd like to create uh, a series of shared facilities, which are all specialty things that can help in design, prototyping, testing of new technologies for housing in rural Colorado. And, and we have found that as much as housing is housing, Rural Colorado needs are just enough different that we could say they don't necessarily fit up in an in a, a urban-style uh, development. Right. Uh, what might be considered an ADU or associated dwelling unit in, a, in an urban area is actually a complete house in a rural area. Right. And, uh, and so it, it's interesting uh, how we, we kind of switch back and forth between what's an urban viewpoint and what's a, a rural viewpoint. But uh, there... Uh, we're talking uh, uh, with Canyon City right now about being a potential hub for this where we would establish uh, all these uh, needed but non-existent uh, facilities, specialty things uh, in Canyon City and then creating a spoken hub network where, say, a rural community could manufacture a component part for one of these houses and then that might be brought to uh, Canyon City where it's assembled into a final product And so ultimately this becomes an economic development program where any community of any size anywhere in Colorado, not necessarily limited to Colorado, can contribute or participate in this and at the same time come back and address their local housing problem at the same time. Well, and you can get through all of the – sort through all the technologies that work and that don't work and that um, that incubated, that important experiment piece to all of that, um, that nobody's really – there's not a lot of – um, bravery on that part, it's going to take that private, um, it's private high, funding and support. It's high risk. On, yeah, yeah, for sure. It is high risk, well, but it, 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 somebody's got to do it. Well, back to the funding, uh, almost all 
federal funding is debt financing. And in any innovation, the early front end part of this is so high risk that it almost never qualifies for debt financing. And and that's where private money has to come in and take that risk on with the hope that that's going to turn positive down the road. Uh, At some point, you reduce the risk to a point where then debt financing becomes appropriate and it becomes more available. And, And then once you get to actual construction, there's lots of sources for funding. Uh, but that front end, the, the, the development work, or in this case, even the technology development work, uh, that's higher risk, and that needs uh, needs private funding to make that happen. And so, yeah, having a, a site where you could bring in any strange idea, um, build a prototype, test it out, stick it into an existing prototype house and go, how does that interface with this? Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, some of the things like Canyon City, uh, we're looking at geothermal power production because they sit on a geothermal hotspot there, uh, more particularly in Penrose than Canyon City. But it may be a source of energy, and, and there was a bill before the Colorado legislature to elevate geothermal to a level with wind or solar uh, as far as receipt of money for doing different things. But it's been largely ignored because it was off to the side. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, again, where would you test that at? Well, we can test it in Canyon you test City. test it in Canyon City. Yeah. Or our friend Brad um, Azermar, who is desperate to try to figure out a way to use hemp as building material. This is where he could start yes. to investigate and look at, at doing that. Right. The, there's a number of federal and state facilities across the United States for building materials and housing and how you do that. The big Department of Commerce lab is in Gaithersburg, uh, Virginia. And, um, but I don't know if they've ever tested hemp there yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and even if they submitted it there, it isn't that they would necessarily be against it despite all the federal stuff around that. But they might take more time than we may be able to do here. And we may go out and do strange things like set it on fire, uh, pour water over it, right. you know, do, uh, do it, you know, see what, really, really see, test it. See if yeah. it's actually is a viable. It, is it ruggedized you know, for the <laughs> rural environment? Uh, uh, for the Colorado's rural yeah. environment. Yeah. So 120 mile an hour wind, dust, lots of rain. Fire. Yeah. Fire. Flood. On the same day. Snow, yeah, frozen, very cold. You have to go from frozen solid in the morning to, right. to 110 degrees by the afternoon. Plus yeah. high UV because we're yep. at altitude. Yes. So. Yeah. No, all of those things that go into that. So there's just bright spots ahead on all of this. Yeah. I We've studied it intensely for the last couple of years. We have projects in motion. We're very confident that this is all solvable. Uh, but what we're starting kind of in the middle, so to speak, where we're starting with work workers who are making this level of funding or wages. And with every efficiency that we're able to achieve, we can start lowering the bar and get to people who make less and less money. And at some point, this will spill over into the subsidized housing mm-hmm. uh, because same issue there. Uh, you don't want to be spending more money on the housing than necessary, but you also want a quality uh, product when that will exactly. contribute to the community and not become a problem or an eyesore or, as we call it, slums of the future. Right. So um, going to the, the private funding for this, uh, post-COVID and everything going on right now with uh, the cost of basically every single thing every day, is it tougher to find money for investment or is the money out there still? The money is definitely there. The communication has to be completed. It's like with a lot of technologies or innovations, they may have been around three, four, five, six, even 10 years. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows about them. So the money and the the solution are, are not matched. 
Okay. And and part of it is, as Sarah was mentioning earlier, it's got to be matched in a demonstrable form mm-hmm. where they go, well, I don't know what that is, but that's a house. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I can walk through the house, and even if I don't have three engineering degrees, I know it's cooler in here, and I looked at the utility bill, and it's lower than what I pay at home, so something's working right. Okay, right. that's an end-user affirmation, which is not necessarily something that everybody can get to without seeing it in context in play. So that's part of the reason we need uh, to do as many projects as quickly as possible. We want to experiment with different housing technologies as possible and work our way down to stuff that works best, uh, some stuff that may work okay. Uh, and in some communities, they may need to choose okay over best just because of price. We were super excited that you're bringing this to the table. We know there's a heavy lift coming on trying to get over um, the local communities and all of that. Um, the Will you give a shout-out to some of the um, name names is what I'm asking you. So like we talked about Rick Klein, but some people that are that have been really great to work with so far. Name some names. Well, I, I really appreciate working with everybody in Walsenburg and in Werfano County from uh, Dustin, who's the city manager down there, to Carlton Croft, who's the head of economic development for the county, um, and uh, Carl Young, who's the county administrator, uh, who basically said, come on down, let's, let's make something let's happen out, down yeah. here. Uh, then uh, I've been working uh, with Susan, who's the city manager in San Luis, uh, Tricia Herman, who is the uh, county economic development up in Phillips County in Holyoke. And um, and we're now talking uh, with Rick, uh, who's the new city administrator in Georgetown. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Uh, but we've talked over 40 communities across the state uh, and down into uh, northern New Mexico. And it, it, they're all the same, but they're all different. Right. Uh, so uh, one of the statements I've heard is once you've seen one rural community You've seen just one rural community. <laughs> that is true. Um, yep. Yeah, the uh, the business model we're working with probably has like, I'll say, 20-plus uh, significant variables and about another 40 or 50 uh, important but lesser variables. And, and we're just trying to figure out where the sweet spot is in that and, and while well, we're doing that as we go. So uh, we're taking a classical entrepreneurial approach. Is, uh, we'll know when we're done when we get there, but we're going to build it anyway. So final question. Um, so Action 22 members who are listening and, um, and P- are just our regular listeners, they're going to they're gonna be watching all of this with great interest. What would you like, what would you tell them that they can help? Like they're going to want to be involved. So what? For anybody who wants to be involved, if you have an immediate housing need, uh, we would talk to you about what we can do and when it can be done and, and just try to get it, so to speak, into the, the production line. Um, uh, beyond that, uh, though, while we're working on these larger issues, uh, I would like for you to contact Jason Nagy uh, at this new nonprofit, the Rural Workforce Housing Innovation Coalition. And uh, if you've got a new uh, technology, talk to us about the accelerator. If you uh, have a... Um, uh, code problem, right. please, please join, join the coalition right. and give us feedback. Tell us what it would take to stand up a brand new building code 
that would work in your community, in your community, in your community, in your community. So right. it's, a, it's more of a uniform standard uh, that can be tweaked a little bit if you need to, but pretty much let's, let's go, let's rock and roll with that. What um, about on the investment side? On the investment side, uh, there are lots of different opportunities at different levels. As an example, in the accelerator, um, we want to establish a revolving uh, loan fund to help um, businesses raise more money. So instead of you know business coming in and saying, I want $2.5 million, we'll go, we'll advance $50,000 in a controlled method, and you will go out and raise the $2.5 million, but we'll show you how to do it. We'll mentor you through the process. And then when you're done, you're going to give us that money back and a little bit of stock in your company so we can roll that over into another thing. So we're looking to raise at least a half a million dollar fund into the accelerator that's dedicated just to these new technologies and rural workforce housing. Uh, at a larger level, uh, Housing O2, uh, we set up uh, investments. We're getting ready to put together a $25 million uh, real estate fund for acquisition and entitlement. And we'll be launching that very, very soon. Uh, the, the ink's not quite drying and the people who are going to be on the uh, decision tree are all being uh, negotiated through the process right now, but maybe the next couple of weeks. And, and so if, if you're an impact investor uh, who just loves housing or you want to do something uh, more specific in your community, that's one route. But then in each community, we'll set up a, a private placement just for that community. We're also looking at using crowdfunding so that we may do a two-tier raise so every person in the community, even as non-accredited investors, can participate. And then we can bring in outside money over the top of that uh, where there isn't local money available. Uh, but we can do that on a project-by-project basis. So even in Canyon City right now, we're looking at seven different capital campaigns, um, which include uh, a general fund that's multiple community uh, one that is the land we purchased, which will then break out into three to ten uh, follow-on sub-projects. Nice. And, and some are debt, some are equity, some are short-term, some are long-term. We're trying to make sure that we can match every uh, set of criteria that an investor may have wherever they're at in the United States. That's amazing. Well, Carl, was there anything else? No, that's, that's a lot. It's a lot. I'm happy to talk to you for four or five more days. So yeah, no, we, we could talk about this for four yeah. or five more days. We want to um, we want to do a little bit more of a follow up um, on the the housing summit and kind of talk um, that out and really what the uh, the nonprofit is is going to look like. So, um, Carl, just thanks for coming down and having sure. this conversation. This is one of the really exciting things, and of course. Um, uh, we like your approach because it, it feels and sounds a lot like Action 22, except that it's focused on just housing, which um, we are happy to participate in. But um, that if we have somebody that's running things that they've got it covered, then we can be a support role in that, which is what we really want to do because there's all these other issues on the rural um the rural side of it. So we're excited that you're starting this nonprofit that's going to do all these um, amazing things. Um, But the public-private partnerships uh, from where we're sitting, um, especially on the local government affairs side, is really what we want to see you overcome in a hurry. Yeah, the it's an interesting thing um, as a private sector person who's worked with a lot of different communities in many, many states. The conjunction or where these two come together, private and public, is, is, it's, it's a huge gap. 
And, and I've spoke to a number of the large national groups and state groups and so forth about we need to do more training or preparation for people to understand how to cross over because there is all these you know, hundreds of funding sources on the public side. There's an equal number on the private side. It's very rare to see them come together. Exactly. And yet, when you were trying to do a project like we're talking about here, it's almost impossible to do it without, without both those sources both of funding. Sides. Exactly. Uh, and, that's exactly. And that's right. just at the funding level. That, then we get into all the other things in the community from training, new job generation, um, bringing new industries in to replace the industries that are, that are going out of style or declining. Uh, it, it all needs public-private partnerships. And so I, that's part of the reason why I joined Action 22 is because you guys are getting out there and bringing everybody together. And and, it, and it's somehow as simple as that sounds, it's not. Uh, it's not. But we're going to talk about the legislative session with Mike Beasley later this week. <laughs> Speaking of people not coming together, we're yeah, going to talk about that. We're going to talk days. about that because that's been – um, I think that's been one of the harder lifts um, for this session. It was it was supposed to look and feel different than it did, but it's that public-private partnership that we all need to have happen. Um, yeah, it's probably the biggest barrier I yeah. see going forward. Well, and, and I know that you guys are looking at a, a new leadership program. And, yeah, we are. Um, I, I really am looking forward to see what you guys do with that because – um, the average citizen, average taxpayer, has no idea how legislation is created or after it's created what has to be done on the rulemaking regulation side within the executive branch in order to bring it into play. And then along that path, how few occasions a private sector has to either guide it in its inception or keep it from going off the rails on the backside. And that requires people who really understand how this all works. And so mm -hmm. uh, helping people become empowered to be vocal super citizens, so to speak. <laughs> right. Uh, I really, I think that's great. I'm looking forward to that. Well, even taking it one step further, not just the average citizen, but the people that are actually doing that don't understand that. And there's a learning curve on it. And I, and I get it, you know, and I'm, I'm not just talking people elected to office um, because there is a learning curve once you get in. But, you know, you're talking government affairs people, um, city managers, um, you know, industry advocates. The, it's surprising in 15 years of my experience how little people actually know how it works, and that's their job. And much less navigating any yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. So when we're talking about um, these local government uh the people that work for local governments and trying to overcome um, zoning or whatever, they there's a huge need for them to understand some ba some of these basic things that they just don't they don't have the resources to do that um, on their own. And it takes it takes a ton it takes a ton to learn that. So we're on that side. I think that's one of yeah we're going to do some really great things with that. We've um, CU has committed um, to being a part of that um, to even get some of this credentialed. And so is uh, Public Community College, too. So they've all committed to doing that. And they're going to be on that steering committee. And we'll be um, reaching out to our members on that a little bit. We'll, we hope to have um, we hope to launch that this summer um, and have the introduce the first the first class of the first consortium um, at our annual meeting in October. So right, right. that's what we're going to I, I, I look forward to that because. Uh, the more people understand how it works, the less 
um, combat that we'll experience. It, it, it will. And it's, um, it's intimidating at first, but then once you figure out a couple of small things, then, um, then you do that. And the leadership programs are, we're not going to replicate the other leadership programs around. We're going to do something that's a little, a little bit more, get your hands dirty to figure this out kind of thing. Well, and, um, through the, the new nonprofit, we already have a couple things in mind that might be softballs to work with. We, we uh, look forward to yes. that. We definitely look forward to that because it's really going to be this, this program is going to be by Action 22 members for Action 22 members um, so that we are doing that lift that we're just facilitating the lift for them basically yeah. is what we're going to do and building a deeper bench. Yeah. To use a basketball term. You know, a uh, funny story, um, working in DC, new people coming into the Hill to work. Um, you look at their resume and what they went to college for. You know what you did not want to see? Political Pol- science. Yeah. Because Poly- they had, because they think they know how it works and they have no clue how it works. We yeah. get lots, we get lots of questions. I get the questions on the state side. Brian gets the questions on the federal side. So we're hoping that, um, It'll actually be this really will good. answer these. Questions yeah, this will people. answer these questions for for people who go through all of this. They'll get they'll get all of it. <laughs> yeah, I remember I testified on a bill in front of the state legislature, which was the business subcommittee. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the people, one of the legislatures asked what a corporation was. And um, I had to stop very carefully, and provide a, a, a controlled uh, response to that question, yeah, because uh, uh, it was uh, it was very important for what we were trying to do, uh, uh, and uh, the fact they didn't understand what a corporation was uh, spoke greatly to the fact that we have a representative government who is supposed to be there to help us out, but they don't necessarily know everything they need to know to make a best decision. That's where the private sector and other people have an opportunity to educate them on what they need to know well the i think that's one of the things that brian and i get frustrated with we'll have legislators and it's a good thing we have legislators come to us it's never um in front of a committee or it's very rarely in front of the committee but they'll come and we'll have conversations and they'll ask us questions and we've even had them like how how do you guys know all this um and we're like, you're the legislator. You're supposed to know. <laughs> uh, well, but it's, it's we have to keep track of it. There's so much to keep track of. So, well, There's a legislator right now that probably listens to this, and I'm not throwing in anybody under the bus, but I was similar type thing talking to this legislator and a few others about veterans issues for the mm. um, UVC that I'm the VP for the Southern Colorado. And I... I'm not making this up. Um, you know, vets talking vets. We need, there's this many vets here. And the question that came out of the, the person's mouth was, I don't understand why there's so many vets in this region. Are there that many animals that are sick? And I was like, I, I what mean, the, just happened? Yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> the look on everybody's face was just like, okay, moving on. <laughs> and the answer is yes, there are a lot of animals. There's there so are so many animals. animals. There's so many. We're a big ag state, ranchers. so we have lots of animals. Yeah. Ag's the number two industry yeah. in Colorado, so yeah, there's a lot of vets like, there. Why do you have 18,000 veterinarians in Pueblo? It's like, no, not <laughs> I'm really sorry that happened to you. <laughs> that's, 
That's awful. Oh, I could I could tell anyway. But, yeah, yeah. But, but that speaks to the need for this program. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you've got to help them all the time learn what they don't know. They can't know everything, yeah. and there's so many things that come across their plate in a hurry mm-hmm. uh, that you don't really have time to go back to school. You got to you got to get up to speed immediately. Yeah. So we have people who are running for office that um, I was told recently they're running for office, and they listen to our show specifically for that reason. Because we talk out some of the issues that they have no idea about. Um, and they're running for office and they, they're not tracking legislation at all. So, um, yeah, we're going to see if we can fix some of that. Um, because the other problem is the legislators aren't talking to each other or looking to see what their impact of their bills. There's no way for them to. In 120 days and 700 bills, there's no way for them to go, okay, I'm going to run this bill, I'm going to run this bill, I'm going to run this bill. Who else is running a bill that looks like this? Oh, wait, we don't know. It's gonna, it's added burden. Well, and so. they, they stack up at the back end. So today has got to be an awful day at the legislature for passage it's, of bills. It's an awful day. I was, try, I was actually awake at 2.30 this morning looking to see what they got done yesterday and what they were still going to have to do today because there's discussion about um, doing an, uh, a special emergency session or something because they can't get through everything. Um, and so instead of just actually knuckling down and getting through it um, – figuring out what's what the minutiae is and tossing that out. They're just playing the blame game with each other. So it's a lot like um, I was describing it um, to my boys on the way to school the other day. And as, you know, middle school, as I'm describing it, I'm realizing that I'm talking about what life looks like for them in middle school. So um, it's just rough. It's just, it's, we, we have some, you know, really great legislators. We, that we really love They're They tend to be the action 22 legislators, but there's a, such a small number of them that it's the connecting urban and rural that we really, um, we get a lot talking to us about it. And, um, Fortunately, the soapbox that I got on top of at the for our housing summit um, did not get recorded, so nobody's going to hear that um, who wasn't there. But I was on a little bit of a soapbox about stop adding burden. That's the problem with the legislatures. They we're going to talk about that Friday. Like that's going to be you're going to get an hour and a half of that of so. getting on the soapbox with yeah. Mike Beasley. Um, yeah, we'll talk about it then. It was it's. That's, I always have a hard time trying to say, okay, specifically what's wrong at the end of a legislative session because I have brain damage at the end of it. This one was a totally weird one um, and just the timing and all these bills going at the end and there's just no way to do what I normally do. Um, and it's really frustrating, but uh, it's it's my frustration this this year was the lack of stakeholder process and, and the added burden. And Sarah is much kinder than I am when we talk about it, but I hold back. Like, uh, no, you I, do. I do hold back. You're I, the brakes. I don't, think, I don't think I will after this because I have some strong feelings about a lot of stuff that happened. Yes. I, well, uh, we all do. And trying to be reasonably politically correct and also needing to work with these people in the future, we, we, we have to figure out how to bring them up to the standard we're looking for. Yeah. And, and by the way, saying that um, – 
the views and opinions on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Action 22 nor its board. No. So they anything don't. that comes out of my mouth is my opinion. And mine as well. And Carl's as well, or any of our guests. Those are the opinions of their. Um, but it's on, we're, you know, when you're on the receiving end and when you're in the trenches, and um, it's a little bit different. It's a little yes, bit different perspective when you're actually trying to do something versus uh, talking about it. Yep. Yeah. So on that, we no longer subscribe to the School of Pontification and Perpetuity. And so that's what all of us are working on right now. Mm -hmm. So, well, thanks for joining us, Carl. We appreciate it so much. Um, We're going to talk a little bit um, with your partners um, on this, um, this idea of trying to overcome this with another nonprofit, which, um, you know, I'm a person who thinks that there's too many nonprofits. So um, for me to be excited about a new nonprofit is, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's not a problem. As soon as uh, Jason solves all these problems, we'll just shut it down. <laughs> <We're> gonna, <laughs> it's, we that's done, and then we'll shut down the nonprofit. That I can have a discussion about. And I run a nonprofit. That's my whole career has been running nonprofits. So um, that'll still be good. Well, thanks, Carl, for joining us. Sure. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. So we're sitting here with Jason Nagy, who is uh, working with Carl Dakin, and he is starting this new nonprofit, and I'm going to not get the name right, so tell me the name of this nonprofit that you're starting. Rural Workforce Housing Innovation Coalition. So that's a mouthful. So um, talk a little bit about why another nonprofit. Yeah, well, uh, I came from government, uh, my background, uh, and uh, a lot of this is acronyms, right? But sure. uh, So... But there's a lot to solve. It's a complex world. And um, I've been in Colorado since leaving government uh, for about seven, eight years, trying as a social entrepreneur, and things just, you know, come in. And there's a lot to probably prioritize. And finding the right partners on what to prioritize is, sure. is, is key. So having just worked through uh, seven, eight years of, of processing here in Colorado, uh one of the issues that comes up is the need to really kind of coalesce around solving some of the big issues. And I think we could look at uh, the, I guess, what is it, the, the priority of needs. And, yeah. you know, shelter is, is right there with community. Um, and so these housing crises that we have are complex. We need to probably uh, look at, at opportunities to kind of pull the best practices together and looking at action 22 and what it's done with the conference uh, just less than two weeks ago, uh, this came into stark view, which was, uh, you know, filling gaps, bringing the expertise in just to solve some of these. And so we want to provide that platform to do that. Well, and I think people, what people don't understand about nonprofits is um, that really it is the bridge on the gap between public and private. Um, And so the governments need nonprofit organizations to provide that bridge. Um, And so um, I jokingly say we don't need another nonprofit, but the truth of the matter is that that's it's the best vehicle to get across that bridge. And of course, we're a nonprofit, so mm-hmm. um, but so we know that better than anybody. Um, 
we because of a technical snafu, we lost all the audio for the housing summit. Um, so I'd be interested to see what your takeaways were from that from a very um, different perspective because we were in it, we were putting it on, and so we have a different um, point of view. But um, will you t- walk us through a little bit with the housing summit and what you learned and what your big takeaway was from that? Yeah, well, institutionally, you brought together great people. Um, you know, I, I look at institutions as people. So sure, sure, this sure. question of yeah. you know, what, what is a nonprofit? So, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of history that I just don't know in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of why these institutions were formed. Uh, sure. A lot of them we heard even, you know, that Chaffa, for example, you know, uh, always has this notion of, of being a, a quasi-governmental, right. right? And they're a nonprofit. Right, right. So the complexity of the environment in which we're operating and the histories of that, and the confluence, which you, you brought together together to a degree with, yeah. with what you could in, in one day. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, go, coming in, it's, it's always, uh, I guess, tr- looking at what is prioritized with the communities that are brought together and doing a better where there are gaps that are raised mm-hmm. and there were a number of gaps that, are, that were raised. Um, and then, you know, uh, trying to basically... Um, as as rural workforce housing innovation coalition basically trying to um you know uh, look at the three priorities that that we have come to to know uh, in servicing um innovation cost workforce development right. and and technology development for for economic development so i had somebody ask me um what you were working on and they said how in the world are they going to find a workforce in order to build any of these any of these things so if the problem is workforce housing and you don't have a workforce how are you going to build for workforce yeah so each community uh you know is has its own dynamics and and new opportunities arise and but then there's the just living right Mm -hmm. we we have consistency too uh as homo sapiens over time. Uh, so basically, you know, looking at, um, you know, the, the, the health issues, the education issues, uh, and like spatialization in Colorado, like, you know, questioning um, living in Denver metro, uh, alternatives to that, uh, what, what, what natural resource dynamics do we have in a community? Uh, so I guess it's, it's optimization, and, you know, it's problem solving. On, sure. you know, where there are gaps in, in the workforce and in labor markets, um, but also the expertise and, and technical aspects of, of solving these issues. And so that, I mean, the, the innovation piece, the I in, in the nonprofit organization is really, you know, trying to evolve the, the notion of, of what can be done and, and optimizing um, but we want to, you know, come with that historical understanding and the process right. that we live in uh, to kind of come to terms with what we can do, what we should do. So one of, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that they got to take off. So oh yeah, yeah. So um, I'm gonna f- I'm gonna finish it up with this, and and we promised um, everybody, and it's we're going to be work- partnering with you on this part of it. Um, is that the big thing that we know that we can do next is um, have a create a regional plan, so everybody in the region is working toward the same goals and whatever resources and all of that. 
Um, and Larry Atencio, who's a city councilman for here in Pueblo, was the one that really brought that up and, and brought that home. So for the for Action 22's next step is we're going to work with you to help that happen. But for our annual meeting in October, we want um, to have to announce or, or to lay out what that regional plan or regional strategy is so that um, everybody can move forward. And it's going to take what your guys are doing there to help coalesce some of these um, barriers so that it's not um, completely ridiculous to overcome that part of it, which is, yeah, that's the big problem, right? We heard about the need for a plan and everyone's looking to who's going to deliver the plan. It's who's going to deliver hear. the yeah, plan. It's great yeah. to hear that you're, so, you're coalescing that. Yeah. No, we're going to, we're going to do that part of it. And then we hope to bless it and, and hand it off to everybody um, at that point. Um, when are you officially official on the nonprofit? So May the 4th, uh, it was incorporated in okay. the state of Colorado. So, so the force is with it. it. I think so. <laughs> I, yeah. And then, you know, the, the conference was uh, on the 29th. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it was just know, a couple days yeah, after that. Yeah, I know it's that. hard to believe. It's been a great yeah. couple of weeks. So perfect. Um, so uh, for our listeners, do you have a website yet? or? Yeah, so um, right now uh, Housing O2, you know, is a, is a key fundamental partner for this. So they've got uh, something up on their website with, with Carl Dakin's group. Um, but we're also uh, in the process of launching our own domain. Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, okay. That'll be up soon okay. as well. All right. Well, as soon as we have that, we'll let everybody know and we'll keep everybody posted on um, strategies moving forward with you guys. So thank you so Wonderful. much thanks yeah, having, thank for having you. the conversation. Great. Okay. Thanks. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Action Happen. If you're not a member of Action 22, you need to be. Go to www.action22.org for information. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube, like, and any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at show at action22.org. Again, it's show, S-H-O-W, at action22.org. Thanks. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.